Well, church, this morning we arrive at Judges chapter 4. So, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to our text for today. Judges chapter 4, we'll be reading from verse 1. So, as you're all, all finding Judges 4, let me comment briefly on the verse, the final verse of chapter 3, which if you were with us last week, you'll observe we overlooked in our examination of Ehud and his victory over Eglon, king of Moab. Verse 31 in chapter 3 informs us that after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. And that's it. That's, that's the extent of our author's account of Israel's third judge or deliverer. A single sentence, or to be fair, two, which give us scarcely more than the man's name, who his father was, who Israel's oppressor was at the time, how many he killed, and his weapon of choice, an ox goad. And so for those who are unfamiliar, an ox goad is simply a short stick that's been fire hardened and then sharpened on one end so that you can use it to herd cattle, to prod cattle. So for whatever reason, our author has determined to give us nothing more. Yet, despite the apparent brevity here, there is much that we could comment on. In fact, if you were a part of our summer study last year, then you'll remember we spent an entire hour examining this verse. And so I share this to dispel any notions that your pastor is simply skipping verse 31 because he couldn't find enough to say to justify a sermon on a single verse. You know your loquacious, garrulous pastor far too well to listen to that. So the reason we're skipping verse 31. The real reason is because I think there's a significant amount of overlap in the Shamgar story here with that which we saw last week with Ehud. It's there that we noted how God's salvation is great. Why? Because it isn't limited by the instruments available. Meaning the Lord used Ehud to deliver Israel despite the fact that the man's behavior at a bare minimum raised major ethical concerns. And here, similarly, he uses Shamgar, whose name reveals he wasn't even an Israelite. In fact, his, father name, his father's name suggests he was a worshiper of the Canaanite warrior goddess, Anath. So, if this is true, what I believe our author is demonstrating again is how God can bring salvation for his people through any means. Because he's the only one who saves. Shamgar, like Ehud, was merely a tool. Only Yahweh saves. And so for this reason, among many others, as we're seeing as we walk through the story of Judges, his salvation, God's salvation, is very great. So rather than retracing steps we've already taken, we're simply going to move on in the story this morning to the account of Deborah, which begins in Judges 4 and verse 1. So would you follow along as I read? After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Because he had 900 chariots, iron chariots, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali and told him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, 
take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaananim near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came in by pursuit, or came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera, with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Do you ever noticed how storytellers have a style? In college, Melinda and I went to a special event that was sponsored by our school's English department in which a professional storyteller, and yes, there are such things, a professional storyteller simply told stories. It was absolutely spellbinding. This guy would just begin speaking, and it felt like you'd been transported right into the countryside that he was describing in his story. He, he, he had a real gift gift for words, and he used this unique style as he would create suspense using these words. He'd build excitement, he'd draw you in, and then he'd convey a point. And church, in the same way, the author of our story here employs a technique that I believe we'd benefit from noting as we seek to understand together this morning the truths that are being communicated. First of all, 
You notice how our writer here omits all non-essential information. All non-essential information. Now, he may be wordy in places, in places though, that he, and he does belabor certain points, but he doesn't go over things that are insignificant, even when we feel it might be necessary. For example, following Jabin and Sisera's introduction, we're informed that Deborah, a prophetess, is judging Israel. A previously unheard of leadership model. And our author presents it without explanation. No backstory, no, no, no details, nothing. And we see the same reality again in the introduction to Barak. All we get is the man's name. And then again in Jael's meeting with Sisera. We're told nothing about Sisera's flight, how he came to stop at her tent, and what he hoped to accomplish by hiding there. Further, you'll notice how our author includes no moral commentary on Jael's consequent actions. And this is where we often start to get fidgety, isn't it? Because just as we were concerned last week by Ehud's actions, we battle to reconcile the behavior that we see ex expressed here with that that's condoned by the God of the Bible. And our author doesn't help us in the least. He includes no overt judgment, no rationalization, no condemnation, even exoneration, nothing. Why? And church, I believe the reason is that our author here, as well of all biblical authors for that matter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded what they viewed as important. Important to the story at hand, so the immediate story, but also as important to the story, God's overarching story, the story of Scripture. Now, this doesn't mean that unspecified details aren't significant. Clearly, God cares about His people's moral standing. Clearly, God is concerned about who leads His people. So the unspoken isn't necessarily unimportant. But what it does mean for us this morning is that the truth being conveyed isn't directly tied to unmentioned matters. So, as we approach this text, the fact that a woman was leading Israel wasn't an endorsement for equality, as radical feminists often argue. And I'll say more about that a little bit later on. Further, Barak's backstory had no bearing on his hesitation to lead Israel to glory. And Jael's motivation was of no consequence as regards the outcome of her actions. So what then is this story's purpose for us? What would God have us see? together, church. And to answer that question, I believe we have to begin by considering the plot. Considering the plot. And as we've seen in each of the previous accounts, Israel is once again living in sin. The first stage in the cycle that we examined two weeks ago, Israel once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he's angry. The Lord is angry. Now, do you notice when it was that Israel returned to their sin? It's after Ehud died. So while Ehud was living and leading, presumably Israel pretended to love and serve the Lord. They played at being pious. However, the moment that the man died, their true character came out. And church, isn't this a familiar song? It's been on the top 20 for years. I mean, where a strong, convictional leader establishes a pattern based upon principles that he or she have that they are not shared by those who follow. And so those who follow simply pretend. They, they go along to get along, right? They love, they play at being pious while their leader's alive. Maybe it's because they feel pressure. Who knows? 
but they, they go on and live in a certain manner. But then the moment that that leader is gone, they toss those principles in the trash. Right before I went to college, my father sat me down and he informed me that until that point in my life, I had to attend church, had to read my Bible and pray. All the visible behaviors that marked a Christ follower had not been optional for me because I had lived under the authority of my parents. However, now that I was leaving home, he made clear it was up to me to make those decisions, those habits, those practices my own. In a sense, my faith now had to be my own. And church, in, in a way, this is the transition that I believe we see Israel facing following Ehud's death. And sadly, their response says much about their hearts. Because until Ehud died, Israel seemingly faked it. Because now they're sinning again. And there's something to be said here about sin's nature as revealed by the mundane manner in which their failure is recorded. You notice our author here doesn't give us any sense that anything new or exciting was being done by Israel. Nothing new or exciting. Just the same old stale behaviors that God had condemned, that God despised, he abhorred. And so to this end, one theologian states, you know, it's difficult to be creative in sin. There's, there's a certain monotony about it. Most all of it's been done before. It's simply that we do the same things again. And church, as regards sin, what so often promises to be exciting in the fast lane is nothing more than a dead-end rut. Sin's two problems, as revealed here in this first verse, I believe, are slavery and staleness. Slavery, because we can't escape sin's grip on our own, can we? We're slaves. And staleness, because it never satisfies. Israel, once again, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he sold them into slavery to a Canaanite king, who, verse 3, tells us, cruelly oppressed them for 20 years, at which time they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, this is classic stage two, right? And we saw last week and the week before that, Israel sins, Yahweh's angry, stage one. Stage two, here we have Israel cry out, just as we've noted, and Yahweh provide a savior. Only here, here in our story, is where the plot thickens. Because in this, here the first person that we're introduced to by our author is Deborah. Deborah, a prophetess, and the wife, we're told, of Lapidoth, who at this point in Israel's story is leading or judging the people. Her role, as you can only imagine, is one that's has attracted much study in the 20th and ongoing into the 21st century. And we'll, like I said a moment ago, we'll come back to this. But just for right now and as regards the plot, notice she isn't the deliverer. Deborah isn't the deliverer. Deborah calls out Yahweh's selected savior, Barak. Sadly, Barak freaks out, and he refuses to go unless Deborah accompanies him, which she does, kind of like we spoke about with our children, but she does so only after letting him know that he's now forfeited the glory that would have been his as associated with the divine role he had been called to fill. Instead, this renown now is the property of Jael, a seemingly random woman who happens to kill Sisera in her tent while he's taking a nap. Then at this point, our author informs us, the last part of our text, that on that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. So there's your plot, basic plots. So the previous judges we've studied to this point, this story follows a similar flight path. It lands in a familiar place. However, 
it also has some unique waypoints that I believe reveal the extent of Israel's canonization to this point and in so doing the greatness of God's salvation as expressed by key characters. So we've looked at the plot. Let's consider the players. Let's look at the players. Next to the Israelites themselves, our story has five. We have Jabin, Sisera, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Jabin was the Canaanite king who we're told reigned in Hazor. Now, outside of the Bible, very little is known about Jabin except Egypt's Ramses II. So a prominent pharaoh in Egyptian history left an inscription that described Jabin as a powerful leader. And surprisingly, the scriptures also have a record of Jabin prior. And Joshua 11 records Jabin's defeat by Joshua and also describes Joshua raising Hazor to the ground. So based on these references, prior references, some scholars have argued Deborah's story, it had to have occurred too soon for Jabin to have regrouped. And therefore, this, this reference here we're looking at must have somehow meant someone else, must have been in, intending someone other than the one is mentioned. However, general consensus of biblical scholars is that this regrouping of Jabin is just proof of his incredible strength, which is what we would argue because here we see God has sold Israel into his hands. And so Jabin, our first character, is Yahweh's chosen oppressor. The second character we encounter is Sisera in order of appearance, the commander of Jabin's army, and who, despite our initial inclination for association, he's not the main antagonist. Sisera leads the army, but the 900 iron chariots noted there and the Israelites' cruel oppression given are not attributed to Sisera. The he that's there in verse 3 is grammatically linked to Jabin, not the general. And you'll also notice how at the very end of our text, there's a conclusion with reference to Jabin's subjugation by God, not the generals, not Sisera. So Sisera is simply Jabin's lackey in our story, if it's fair to call a general a king's lackey. Further, his name suggests he may have been a Hittite, possibly even of the same ethnicity as Shamgar, which would be really weird since God has just delivered his people by Shamgard. And so you've got Jabin, we have a second character, Sisera, and then we have Deborah, the prophetess, and Israel's controversial leader at the time. Or was she? Meaning, was she controversial and a leader? And I believe the answer to the first question in regards to controversial is no. Because you notice how unconcerned our author is with explaining how it came to be that a woman was in her position. Our text gives nothing in the way of an explanation or defense of Deborah's role. Hence, it would seem to me that our author, along with, interestingly enough, all other biblical authors who refer to Deborah, didn't feel the need, which begs the question, why, right? Because this is a subject that is often controversial in the contemporary church. And so let me offer my two cents, my interpretation of what's going on here. First of all, the principal role that is attributed to Deborah is that of what? Prophetess, okay? A prophetess, which in the Old Testament meant that she was a spokesperson for God. 
in texts such as Exodus chapter 4, verse 15, 16, and as well as in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, there's a description given of a prophet or prophetess as the one in whom God will put his words, and they will then speak these words to the people. Now, in the prophetess's role, Deborah is in good company in the Old Testament. Other Old Testament women, such as Miriam, is referenced as such. Moses' sister, Exodus 15, verse 20. Huldah is named in 2 Kings 22 and verse 14, along with Isaiah's wife, who's mentioned in his book in chapter 8 and verse 3. So in this regard, Deborah's in good company. She's not unique in her role of prophetess. And so I doubt anyone has issue with this. The issues come for those who have issues when we read that she's leading or judging, depending on your translation, leading or judging Israel, holding court under the palm tree of Deborah in the hill country of Ephraim. So what's going on here? And if you begin with just our English language translations of these verses, notice Deborah isn't Israel's judge or deliverer as Shamgar or Ehud or Othniel was. Deborah does nothing more than inform the deliverer, who's Barak, as we've said, of his role in God-given responsibility. She's never mentioned as being set upon by the Spirit of the Lord, or of delivering Israel. That, that role is filled exclusively by Yahweh. Verse 23, there in our text, declares, on that day, God subdued Jabin. Further, and, and now we go to the language, in regards to the actual judging that, is, that she's attributed with here in this text, our Old Testament's original language, that term did not reflect legal action. Rather, it spoke to the intercession of one on behalf of another. So, for this reason, along with the fact that Deborah is never referenced as saving Israel, that she notes God's deliverance of Sisera into Barak's hands, not her own, and probably most significantly, her palm tree. So the site of her business, if you will, is located neither at Bethel nor at Shiloh, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was located. She's, she's practicing her trade out in the hills, remote hills of Ephraim. All of this suggests to me that Deborah filled the role of an alternative to the priesthood at a very specific and tragic point in Israel's story. It's a time when Israel's priests had abandoned Yahweh and so were once again, as we've been told, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. So when cruelly oppressed by Jabin, Israel cries out to the Lord, needing an intercessor. The people recognized that their priesthood was defunct. And so they sought out one who could fill that role on their behalf. And church, what I believe Deborah's character reveals here is not a new leadership paradigm demonstrating the rightness or wrongness of sexual equality. Rather, this is a demonstration of the tragic extent of Israel's canonization. At this point in the judge's story, our author wants us to see how Israel's priests, the religious elite, God's people's clergy, if you will, had failed. They could no longer be trusted to lead the people to salvation. Rather, the people, and that's not individuals, but this is the, the nation as a whole, note, noted there by that collective noun, Israelites, verse 5, the people, all of them now, had to turn to someone else for spiritual aid, a person who wasn't even a priest, Deborah. How tragic. And yet, friends, this has happened over and over in history, hasn't it? The Reformation, 
is one such example, as is the Puritan movement that followed. In both instances in which the church had become so corrupt that people lost confidence in its ability to rightly instruct them in the way of the Lord. And in each of these instances, as the church gradually adopted the world's principles, they began to share its passions and express its perversions, ultimately leading the people to denounce it as defunct and to seek to desire to return to the Lord. And that return has always been marked by a renewed commitment to God's word. And church, as, as, as a people within a nation that has come unmoored from the harbor of our Christian past, we, like Deborah, have been graciously called to speak God's word to the many men and women who are crying out for a Savior. And the offerings of our so-called Christian culture sound so much like the lies of pagan Canaanites that we can't but describe the state of our nation today in the words of verse 1. Once again, we've done evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we can't claim novelty in our sin. On January 22nd, New York City's mayor signed into law a new abortion act that allows for the murder of unborn children through the end of the third trimester, up to the point of dilation, you can kill a baby. And OBGYN doctors around our nation have stated that that is medically unnecessary for the argument that's being made to defend this law. Church, how different are those actions to the child sacrifice we read about Israel practicing to the pagan gods of Canaan? There's no novelty in our sin, or sin's result, death. It has not changed. People all around us are suffering. They need hope, they need peace and forgiveness that cannot be found in a gospel of prosperity, in the promise of your best life now, or in faith healing. Our world needs a deliverer, a savior who is Jesus. Do you know him? Deborah was responsible for calling forth God's chosen deliverer. It was Barak, son of Abinoam. Sadly, Barak, consistent with the severity of Israel's canonization, refuses to do the very thing for which God has called him. He balks at taking on Sisera's boys in their iron chariots. Now, it bears mentioning there are some scholars who believe Barak's hesitation here reflects uncertainty regarding Deborah herself, and they argue that this is why he concedes to go, but only if she accompanies him. Regardless, in the end, the Lord is the one who delivers. Because verse 3, or verse 15 rather, tells us that at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot on foot. Now, how God routed Sisera remains unspoken, but... This same term, that term route there, is used in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 11. It's used again in 1 Samuel 7 and verse 10, as well as in Psalm 18 and verse 14. And in each of those instances, it's used to describe God bringing forth thunderstorms. And so I th it's quite possible, as we think about this story, that this is exactly what God did here. I mean, it would certainly account for why Sisera abandoned his iron chariot, it's the last place you want to be when there's a flash flood, right? It would also explain how Barak's army were kept safe at the pinnacle of Mount Tabor, along with why Deborah, Deborah later sings in chapter 5, and we'll see this next week. She sings in chapter 5 of the Kishon River 
sweeping away God's people's enemies. That said, the key point here, I believe, is that God delivered his people through Barak. Through Barak. And he ensured that no one mistook his hand, God's hand, for that of Barak's. As he promised that the glory for this amazing experience is going to go to the most unexpected character in the story. Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, Moses' descendant, who, verse 11, we're told almost in passing, left the other Kenites and settled by the great tree in Zananim near Kedesh. It's a seemingly insignificant detail, isn't it? That becomes the turning point in our story. When in verse 17 we read, Sisera fled on foot to, of all places, the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because they were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Wow. Church, what a testimony here to God's providence. You remember at the beginning, we considered a storyteller's style? This is where I believe we see the significance of that observation. Note, the fact that our author cares to share how a man seemingly unrelated in any way to this point, to the main events of this story, decides to pack up and move when our author fails to give us any details on Deborah's leadership or Barak's background church. This demonstrates, to me at least, our author's appreciation of the truth that when God flushed Sisera from his chariot, he knew in exactly the direction that that general was going to run, how far he'd get before he collapsed, and who he'd feel safe approaching. God knew before Barak even made it to Mount Tabor what the outcome of this battle was going to be. And this is the point that I believe our author wants to make sure we don't miss. God is sovereign over his people. And he saves them miraculously by his grace and for his glory. So we've noted the plot. We've examined the players. So what's the purpose? What are we to learn together from this story? And I believe we just answered that question with this statement. God is sovereign over his people. And he saves them miraculously by his grace and for his glory. In his style here, the author of Judges is desperate to establish this fact that Israel needed salvation. And friends, we are just as Israel was. At one time, every single one of us was a slave to sin. Our lives were defined by it. We couldn't obey God. We, we couldn't find purpose or fulfillment in life. All we could do was distract ourselves for a time with new and, and improved. But eventually, as the shine fades, as we all know, the realization of our need returns because we all need to be saved and we can't save ourselves no matter how hard we try. As Israel discovered, the source of their salvation was always and only Yahweh as he raised up the deliverer who provided them with relief. And friends, while Israel's deliverers provided only temporal relief because their hearts, Israel's hearts remained unchanged, the reason that we see this story recorded as we do was to teach the need of the Savior who would come, Christ, whom, in whom God has worked salvation such that he changes us from the inside. 
So no longer do we have ourselves enslaved to sin. Christ's life, death, resurrection guarantees our liberty so that now that mournful refrain with which we started this morning, verse 1, once again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so he sold them into slavery. That's been destroyed by the gospel. Christ's victory over death has redeemed us once and for all. This is what makes our God's salvation so very great. And the author of Judges recorded these stories so that his readers then and us now could see the need for the one who would come and save completely unto eternity everyone who confesses their sins and believes in him, all for his glory. Church, do you know the great salvation of our God? Have you experienced it this morning? Have you been led to confess your sin? To believe in Jesus? Because if you have, God's word promises that you will be saved. Will in that you will experience that salvation in that moment completely as God provides you with his grace and covers you with his grace unto eternity such that one day, as we've sung earlier, when all stand before his throne and bow their knees, you will bow your knee as a child of God, not simply an enemy in submission to a conquering king. I hope and pray that you know this salvation and that God has made it rich in your life. Would you close as we pray together? Father, you have shown us in your word again the greatness of your salvation. Lord, and for we who are your church, our one foundation is Jesus Christ. Father, and as we study these stories of your people, it's so easy to want to judge them for the wickedness that we see them demonstrate. And yet we are convicted that we live in a culture in which there is no novelty in regards to our sin. Father, we still are broken, just as your people were broken. God, we face the punishment of and the judgment for our sin which is death, just as did your people. But you, as a God of grace, have provided us with a deliverer. And in this case, the deliverer that you have sent is yourself, your son, Jesus, like us in every way, therefore able to take upon himself our sin as the perfect substitute, but also fully God, holy God, and so able to take our sin and pay its penalty completely, forever, and then defeat the enemy of death so that whoever confesses their sin and believes in Jesus has been delivered. Lord, Lord, no longer do we find ourselves returning to the slavery that we see evidenced by your people in this story because this story was recorded so that we might see the need for something greater than a superficial political deliverer. We needed a sacrificial spiritual Savior, and He is Jesus. God, thank You for this gospel. Thank You for Christ, who is the foundation of Your people, the church. And Father, today, if there are any who have not found salvation in the name of Jesus, Lord, would they confess their sin today and cry out for Your mercy, because You are a God who is gracious and who loves deeply and saves 
completely for his glory. Father, thank you that you are sovereign and that you save your people miraculously by your grace and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.